it's relatively easy to speak about abortion in the abstract. What are the real lived experiences of Orthodox women with regards to abortion? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, which takes away the constitutional protection of abortion rights, means that every state will decide for itself whether abortion should be permitted, and were prohibited, what exceptions to the law will be honored. In principle, it also means that a nationwide ban on abortion, legislated by Congress, is theoretically back on the table. In episode 110 of this podcast, entitled Abortion in Jewish Law and Roe v. Wade in Jewish Public Discourse, I spoke with YU Rosh Hashiva Rabbi Jeremy Weeder, who offered a comprehensive overview of the halakhic questions surrounding abortion and discussed his opinion of whether Orthodox Jews should want Roe v. Wade to be overturned. I strongly recommend listening to that discussion if you haven't heard it yet. Today's podcast is sort of a part two, discussing not the halachot per se, but the experiences of Orthodox women who have had abortions. I spoke with three women, each of whom had an abortion for a different reason, each at a different point in her pregnancy. The point of sharing their stories is not so much to advocate for more liberal abortion laws as to help people internalize the real-life consequences of making abortion more difficult or impossible. As you will hear, I speak very little in this podcast. I try, without judgment, to let each guest simply tell her story so that you, the listener, can decide how it impacts your thinking. After I spoke with these women, I had a conversation with Dr. Rivka Press-Schwartz. Some Orthodox scholars who support the overturning of Roe v. Wade suggest that while many states are banning abortion, this will have little practical effect on the vast majority of Orthodox Jews. First of all, all halachic authorities agree that abortion is not allowed in all circumstances, and there are accordingly many abortions that violate Jewish law, even according to the more lenient viewpoints. Moreover, because of certain exceptions that have been written into the laws, as well as because of the relative ease of interstate travel, women who do have halachic sanction for abortion will have little trouble obtaining one, either in their current state of residence or by traveling to states that have liberal abortion regimes. I asked Dr. Schwartz, who teaches history at SAR High School and is the associate principal of general studies there, whether this is accurate and what the real-world consequences of the Dobbs decision are. Please note that this podcast is significantly longer than normal. For that reason, I have put the time signatures in the show description so that listeners can see where each of the four sections of the podcast begin and end. I also want to strongly recommend reading My Dark Secret, Orthodox Women Reveal Their Abortion Stories. It's an article in The Forward from August 2018 by Avital Shijit Goldschmidt. As a final note, I hope that no matter how you look at the issue of abortion, this discussion today helps you to better understand the consequences of the recent Supreme Court decision. Thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. We're going to preserve your anonymity. You've told me a little bit about your story, and it's heartbreaking and if I can say even compelling in its its power. So let's just open up by talking a little bit about what happened leading up to the moment you realized you needed an abortion. So I, I think technically I, I had two abortions. The, the first abortion that I had at the time, I didn't think of it as an abortion, was an ectopic pregnancy. Um, we had had natural miscarriages in the past and um, very much wanted 
to have another child. And um, I started feeling excruciating pain, went to the doctor's office and in the doctor's office experienced a ruptured ectopic, um, meaning that my uh, the fetus was growing inside my fallopian tube and it burst in the doctor's office. Um, it, I was in excruciating pain and the, the nurse there brought it to my attention that it was quite life-threatening and dangerous. Um, she drove me to the emergency room from the doctor's office because she did not want to wait. And in the emergency room, I was almost immediately taken care of. Um, they were able to save my other fallopian tube. I was told immediately that because everything was done so quickly, um, I would be able to um, try to conceive naturally in the future and to expect a recovery. Um, at the time, again, I, I didn't realize that, that the procedure of having an ectopic operated on what wasn't was an was an abortion. Um, we were just so grateful that it had happened in the doctor's office that I was able to have um, such quick attention um, and the operation, and that um, I was able to go home safely that night. Okay. Fast forward after that ectopic, I had one fallopian tube, um, and we were encouraged um, after years of trying with fertility treatments to just take it easy. And if I were to get pregnant, we would take it from there. I was working with a with a reproductive endocrinologist, and my obstetrician was also a maternal fetal medicine specialist who was consulting with our other maternal fetal medicine specialist. Um, and um, I almost immediately got pregnant. Um, the pregnancy was actually my easiest pregnancy. Um, because of my history, I was being monitored very closely, but the baby was doing well. And then in my third trimester, I felt this really irregular movement. And I knew that my doctor's office opened early and I overnight deliberated, do I go straight to the doctor? Do I go to the hospital? I was not feeling movement and then I was feeling rapid movements, um, but I really trusted my doctor and went to the doctor's office and they immediately sent me to the hospital. At the hospital, they immediately prepared me for um, an emergency C-section. They realized the right away, in other words, that the baby was in distress. Yes, the baby was in acute distress. I was prepared to deliver that morning through through an emergency C-section. Obviously, that's not what happened. What did you discover when you got ready for that emergency C-section? I believe as part of like hospital procedures to make sure before any, as they were preparing me for this procedure, they, they did an, an anatomy scan on the baby. Um, they did a sonogram and we were informed that there was extensive bleeding in the brain. The term that they used at the time that I won't ever forget was um, extensive intracranial hemorrhaging. Um, and once that was shared with us, the maternal fetal medicine doctors at the hospital all started walking into our delivery room and a pediatric neurologist was called to come in and eventually arrived. Um, they sent me for another scan and that scan confirmed that the um, bleeding in the brain was extensive and that we needed to make some difficult decisions that there was either, you know, time was critical at that point. Would I be having an emergency cesarean 
um, or would I be looking to um, have an abortion? So did you consult with anybody in order to find out about the halakhic propriety of it? Is it a decision that you and your husband made on your own? We had over the years with our infertility um, and the fertility treatments and the halakhic issues that come up with fertility treatments had consulted very, very closely with a Rosh Yeshiva, who also happens to be our personal posik, our personal rav. And um, we called our Rosh Yeshiva. And when we called him, he consulted with another very prominent Rosh Yeshiva. And he spoke to the doctors. He spoke to the entire team. We talked about the halachic issues of delivering the baby and what that would look like halachically in terms of interventions or not interventions, also considering the laws in our state of what would need to be done to the baby, um, considering the halachic um, matters, as well as looking at the option of abortion and what that looks like. We were informed by Arav that due to the severity of the of of of, of the brain damage um, that he was poskening that this was a situation where uh, an abortion would, was was recommended. So the psak halacha that we received after consulting with our with das Torah was to, to have a, have an abortion. Now you already told me that the state in which you live did not allow third trimester abortions. So what did you do about that? So the state where we live does not offer third trimester abortions. We didn't know that at the time. And, I, and I'm not sure the rub that we consulted with who was poskening to have the abortion was aware of the details um, of what it would look like to have an abortion. And I honestly was just, just too ashamed to call the organizations that I knew who had helped me with fertility treatments and planning and finding fertility doctors. I, I was just too, I was also like in crisis mode. I, I didn't, I, I'm not sure I was thinking. Um, you know, I, I um, in hindsight wish I had called Jewish organizations that, that deal with infertility because I've learned that that I was not alone, that these unfortunate, rare situations do happen. And unfortunate, less rare situations also happen and women are given psakalacha to terminate their pregnancies. So in, I, I wish I had consulted with others. I wish I had been less ashamed. Um, but at the time I was on autopilot and I went online and called my doctor's office and asked them, do they have the name and number of any providers. And they said that they would get back to me, but it was a Friday and no one was in the office. And I was given this sock to, to that, um, you know, was time sensitive to, to have the abortion. And I started calling every abortion clinic that I could find online. And it was really hard to find the abortion clinics. It is really hard to find doctors who are trained to perform abortions um, because in this country, there's just not enough providers who are trained to, 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 to offer safe third trimester abortions. Um, I finally got through to one clinic in Colorado. They were the only office to call me back that day. 
and they told me that they had an opening for three days later. I accepted it. I, I took the appointment. I gave them my credit card information and we scheduled a flight out of state to Colorado to have the abortion. Um, we really didn't tell many people. Um, I have immediate family that does not know what I went through. I have friends who do not know what I went through. Um, I was incredibly, um, I was incredibly scared of how I would be perceived and what others would think, even though I knew as a from woman that we had done what we were supposed to do. Um, I was concerned of the optics. I was con and also just an incredible um, emotional pain. Um, and then I was confronted with the physical pain. Um, we, we went to Colorado. I went with my husband to the clinic. We were informed that of the procedure and we agreed to the procedure, um, signed the documents, paid for the procedure. You're not allowed to have a spouse in the room with you. And I um, then had the injection. It was a single injection. It was like very similar to having an amnio, which I had experienced before. Um, and then we waited for the heartbeat um, to stop. Um, at that point, the baby was not having regular movements. Um, I was the, the there were long stretches where I felt nothing, and then I would feel um, like rapid kicks, like a seizure, um, and then again go long periods of time with, without any movement. And and the baby wasn't responsive, which was I think as a as a pregnant mother very very difficult. Um, I, I knew the baby was was not the same baby I had been carrying um, a couple days earlier, and we didn't have any reasons why. Um, you know, we, we had consulted with, with Das Torah. We knew what we were doing was the right decision under the circumstances. Um, but emotionally I, I was suffering. I was in excruciating pain and, and, um, and then the physical pain started. We, we flew back our, to, and we met with our doctor. He, I went back to the same floor, the same hospital where just a little time earlier, I thought I was going to be delivering my baby. And they put me at the end of the hallway. And I flew back pregnant. And knowing that I, at any time, um, I could have a spontaneous delivery, meaning I, there were risks in flying back, but I really did want to deliver at, at that hospital with my doctors, with the nurses that I knew. Um, as painful as it was to be back in that place, it was also incredibly comforting. Um, and a few days later, after being induced, um, we delivered, we delivered. Um, and at that point, I had been in touch with my Rev again. And um, we asked about the circumstances of the Hefer Kaddisha's involvement, our involvement with the Hefer Kaddisha. Um, and we really, really were in communication with Rabbanim. Um, multiple rabbanim in terms of how to proceed with the with the burial, with giving kavo to, to to the fetus, and um, I received sock again, not to be involved in the 
proceedings of the Hevra Kadisha. So I delivered in the morning. The baby was taken by the Hevra. I met with the Hevra that morning and they understood um, after, I guess, consulting with, with our Rav that I was not going to be involved, that my husband was not going to be involved. They, they were beyond, beyond sensitive to our situation. I'm not even sure what they knew of our situation. They just knew that this was a newborn who was being who was being buried. And I was not involved. I didn't see the fetus baby. I was not um, I was not um, asked to. I, I really depended on on the sock that we got to to let the Hevra deal with it from from the time that I delivered to the time of, of the burial. The, the only thing I had to do and I was to, was to make the donation to take care of the expenses of the Hevra. And um, I went home, I went home and I remember seeing my child and her asking why I'm sad. And then we had to share with her with with our child that um that um that the baby that I was carrying was back with Hashem and um then the emotional and physical recovery started how did you get through that recovery it must have been so painful being so far along in that pregnancy to think that everything is fine and to have this complete shattering experience how were you able to move forward from that honestly i had i i I went inside and i really did my hitch douglas i did a lot of introspection and reflection and i i i davened i read a lot i parented and I cried. I had just delivered a baby and was lactating and the baby was buried. And I had to confront that pain and suffering. I had to recover physically from a grueling experience of traveling out of state, pregnant, returning on a plane, pregnant, knowing that there were risks associated with flying and that I could go into labor, traveling. And I was also so, so grateful and felt so, so privileged to be able to afford the procedure, to have the support of my husband, to have the support of our Rav, to know that we had consulted with Das Torah and that unfortunately I'm not the only person who has experienced loss. I had a number of women reach out to me that had had fetal loss, late loss, I guess. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't interested in having meals delivered or um, speaking really to anybody. I, as I mentioned, um, we had relatives that we weren't prepared to, to share our, our story with. 
and again, I was feeling very ashamed, but also very confident that um, the PSOC that we got was the was the correct decision for our family. And I moved on. I went to the doctors. We wanted to figure out what was wrong, what happened, why in the third trimester, all of a sudden there was intracranial hemorrhaging. Um, and really, we, we didn't get any answers. We spoke to a number of maternal fetal medicine specialists, the, the, um, the autopsy and the brain autopsy just revealed bleeding. There was no other identifiable reason. I went for extensive testing. My husband went for extensive testing. Um, we sought some of the best doctors who manage recurrent miscarriages and, um, really there were no answers, but we tried again. And because I hadn't had the C-section and because I thank God had a, had a really safe delivery. I mean, it was excruciating, but it was safe. Um, I was given the green light to to try to conceive again. And we were so blessed a year later after another subsequent miscarriage. I will be honest, it wasn't like a smooth path. We were, um, we were blessed with, with another child um, almost exactly a year later. Wow. Obviously, we're talking about this now because of the recent Supreme Court decision in Dobbs. When you heard that Roe v. Wade was overturned, I'm sure it was a very emotionally fraught decision for you. What was your emotional reaction when you heard that or your intellectual reaction when you heard about that decision? You know, I, I it didn't, unfortunately, it wasn't a surprise. Um, you know, once you have experienced an abortion and you speak to women through word of mouth who unfortunately are in similar situations, who have similar situations to me, you, you follow the news a little bit more closely. Mm -hmm. um, over the years, I have been contacted by women in similar and different situations, women from women who, Jewish women who, for whatever reason, decide to have an abortion. Uh, you know, these decisions are not made lightly. You know, whether it's, at the 12 week scan that they find out there's complications, 16 week um, appointment, 21 week, 24 week, 32 week, um, you know, the experience, the isolation, the shame, the guilt, the disappointment, um, it, it doesn't really change. You know, as soon as you find out you're pregnant, you start making plans and thinking about growing your family. And, and the disappointment that comes with the abortion is that that is all over, right? So when I found out I was just in pain, thinking about the women that I have been introduced to over the years who have been in similar situations, and also thinking about the women who are in different situations, but that need an abortion for whatever reason. And thinking about how this is such a private decision between a woman and, and her support system. And that with the statements being made and whether or not it's on social media or by prominent um, 
rabbinic organizations that I had a fear that women would, would not be consulting with Das Torah, that, that women who could have benefited from the support of contacting their local rabbi might not, that, that this is further adding to this shame of having an abortion and that it's just not consistent with what we know about our belief system for so many from families who have benefited from dust Torah, who have benefited from seeking Aitza, from seeking counsel on how to proceed with these complicated, complicated pregnancies or situations. Um, you know, our situation was a medical situation. At the time, we didn't have a reason for why there was this fetal demise or whatever they call it clinically. Um, but that was our situation. I know how much comfort I had in speaking to Dust Torah, in speaking to a Rav, speaking to a prominent posake. And my, my concern and fear is that when the statement came out by the Supreme Court that women are not going to know who to contact or how to contact and receive the AIDSA, receive the, the, the rabbinic guidance on how to proceed when they are confronted with these difficult, difficult decisions of what to do with a very much wanted, or honestly an unwanted pregnancy. Thank you very much for being so open and sharing this story. I was very, very moved listening to what you said, and I'm sure that our listeners are gonna be very moved as well, so thank you. I think if, if I can just add anything, um, I would venture to say that when we are talking about abortion, that there has to be, that I wish that there was a level of sensitivity and understanding that, that women who experience pregnancy may also experience complications and that an abortion is not something that is, is done lightly, that it is not only emotionally difficult, it is also physically challenging it is a medical procedure and that the regulations and, and the limitations to access to abortion are directly impacting women, including myself, who, who need to seek medical attention. Um, I, I had another miscarriage, a natural miscarriage in late second trimester after the abortion and the baby died. It, we, we found out it in, at a late second trimester scan. And I needed to have something called a DNE. A DNE is a procedure different than a DNC, and it is not conducted by a regular obstetrician. It needs to be conducted by a, a specially trained doctor who is an abortion provider. Due to the current political climate, it was so difficult to find an obstetrician who was trained to perform this DE procedure working in a hospital that offered this procedure. This was a regular miscarriage. We didn't understand why, but we have had another situation of a, of a late, later pregnancy loss that needed 
specialized medical attention. And again, I went, had to go online and the hospital that I was going to at the time did not have an experienced provider. They had a, a doctor with very limited experience conducting this. Um, and I went, I had to go back online and look again for uh, an obstetrician who was trained in, in providing DE procedures, which I learned at the time was offered by abortion doctors. Um, I ultimately, through a maternal fetal medicine specialist, was put in touch with an abortion provider who was able to offer in, in, in an ambulatory clinic this DE procedure. Um, but that experience and the ectopic experience really brought light to me of the medical crisis we're facing with these regulations, that it's not just about abortion, it's about access to medical care. And whether you're having an ectopic or an early miscarriage with complications or a second trimester DE procedure or a third trimester abortion, that these are medical procedures that need to be conducted or ideally need to be conducted, um, supervised by trained medical professionals as, as, a, as a healthcare service. And um, that with the current political climate, um, we just don't have enough providers offering the service in the United States. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Abby, Sophia, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Please tell me your story. So me and my husband were, you know, trying to get pregnant a few years ago and nothing was happening. So we went to a fertility doctor and it turned out we had unexplained fertility, which means they don't really know the reason um, why we had infertility, but um, we, you know, we started going in for treatment. So I did IVF. I did all these other things. IUI, I um, ended up doing IVF. I got pregnant with my first son. Um, didn't always work. You know, there was all this last story in between um finally when i wanted to get pregnant again after my son we did ivf it didn't work i had a miscarriage and then the second time i did it i got pregnant with twins um i put two embryos in each time um i didn't test the embryos um and when you don't test them my practice lets you put two in every time knowing that there is a chance to have twins but you know my first born was only one embryo the other time was also only one took so i figured you know ups my chances. If I get twins, I get twins. If not, maybe I'll have um, one healthy baby or just have to do it again. Um, so I was so excited. I'm actually a twin myself. Mm -hmm. I'm a twin sister and I was so happy to find out I was having twins. And, um, you know, you go through your, you go to your regular appointments, they check everything. And then at my 16 weeks appointment, which is actually I missed like I went on vacation, so it was I missed um, part of like the real time I was supposed to come in. I came in at 16 weeks to do um, the check-in. Um, so I'm on the table and they check baby A. Everything's fine, and then they check baby B, and the lady's like looking around, and she's like, "Oh, I can't like the baby's hiding." Like I was like, "Okay, I don't know." So the baby's hiding. But then the doctor comes in and and he's like, "Actually, the baby's not hiding, but we see something wrong with the baby." Um, we think it has hyper, hyper um, which means the brain's like expanded. There's fluid. So like you have to go in right away to go check it out to the, um, maternal fetal medicine doctor, like a specialist. 
Um, so I went to the specialist and he's like, oh, there might be surgery you could do, you know, we'll see what happens. But at the specialist, they found that it actually wasn't that. It had the baby, baby had um, a spinal a neural tube um, defect and it's spina bifida and like the brain was misshapen. There was like all these issues with it. Um, and they said like, okay, you have the choice. You can terminate this baby, which is called a reduction when you go from two babies to one. Um, or you can stay, you know, stay with the pregnancy and the baby could be, we don't really know how the baby will be. Like it could be born sort of, you know, healthy or, you know, you have lots of surgeries. Um, they gave me the choice. They, they, you know, they said like, this is up to you. If you, if you like, they didn't push me either way. They said like, you know, this is your choice. Um, and ultimately I chose to reduce the pregnancy, um, not knowing the effect that it would have on the other baby. If I would lose, if I kept with the pregnancy, if I would lose both and not, you know, not have the one, if it would affect me. Um, and I'm lucky because that baby was the one on top The baby, when it's A and B. So A is the one that's closer to the exit and B is the one on top. So if it was the other way around and I terminated the pregnancy, I probably would have lost the whole entire pregnancy. I may not have. Um, I don't, I don't even know what the outcome would have been. So I terminated the pregnancy, um, of that, that child that terminated, it was a girl, um, her life and they, you know, they injected the heart with potassium chloride. Didn't work the first time I had to go back and they said I had up till I think 23 weeks and six days to decide, but I said, you know, I wanted to do it right away. Um, and Abby, can I ask you, why did you have until 23 weeks and six days to decide? What was that time? So after that, it's not legal in New Jersey to terminate a pregnancy. I see. So, um, but that, that up until that point, like I could, like, I guess they consider the, the fetus is the same. And then after that, it's viable outside the womb. So, um, but there, it was really hard. There was only one place I would do it. Um, even with, you know, all the, the rights that we have, there was one, one place that would do it. It was at Hackensack. Um, hospital and I had to go back twice because it didn't work the first time but I, I really felt that it was the right choice to keep to you know, make sure I was healthy to keep my other baby potentially healthy and also for that the life the potential life that I terminated I you know that I just didn't know if it was for me to bring a life into the world that I didn't even know what I would be able to you know how I would what the outcome would be of who she would like, what things I would encounter. And they said like, you know, she might not be able to, to walk or to go to the bathroom or her developmental disabilities. So I just, and I, I felt like it was the right choice for me, but it was really scary. I didn't, I didn't know anyone else who went through termination. We never talk about, you know, you get, you're doing IVF, you're so excited to, to get pregnant. It's nothing I ever would have thought I would do. Like I was like, I really wanted a baby. I really wanted these babies. Um, I found out they were both girls. I was so attached already, like in my head, like for 16 weeks, I was, I was planning for twins um, and they were going to be best friends. <laughs> and so it was for a while, I was really ambivalent to, to my pregnancy. And I felt like, how could I mourn this one baby and celebrate the life of the other? And, but then I started talking to people every time I was, people would say, Oh, you're pregnant. I'm like, Oh yeah. But I, you know, I, I, I had um, to terminate one of my um, babies because it was sick. Um, so that's the kind of, that's really the story, mm -hmm. um, here. And I, I was always thinking like, 
what if I had caught it later on? What if I didn't have the choice? And also, I mean, I did find a lot of support in the Jewish community. Like, you know, no one questioned it um, because, you know, it was, um, you know, protecting my life and the other baby's life, but it still was a choice. So I know that if the rules, if the laws were different, I, I don't think it would have been as easy. Even if, even though it wasn't, it wasn't even at that point, it still wasn't easy. I had to see a genetic counselor. I had to go like twice to make sure that the, the what they saw was like correct, that the um, the baby had like holes in her spine. Um, but given all that, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky I was able to make that choice, and I have a beautiful, healthy daughter. Um, I just don't know, yeah, if I would have had to keep that pregnancy, I don't know if I, she would have been born. I don't know if how it affected her or me. She probably would have been premature. So there's a lot of like, what ifs. And it could have affected the other baby as well, as you said. Right. Yeah. Like we don't, we don't never know. We'll never know. But luckily I was able to take, take care of it. Abby, if you don't mind my asking you and obviously feel free not to answer anything I ask, but did you talk to anybody about it? Or was it your decision alone, you and your husband? When you made that decision, was it something that just the two of you decided by yourself or did you consult with other people? Um, so my husband's father's a rabbi. So we obviously had mentioned it to him. And I was like, they actually made me speak to a gen- genetic counselor um, and all the doctors. And I, I really actually reached out to some Jewish organizations asking if anyone else had gone through reducing a pregnancy because I just felt so alone. I never heard about this. And I wanted to make sure like, you know, was or did the other baby, did they turn out okay? So I, you know, I, I reached out to the, as many people as I could, but it took me a while to really open up about it. But now it's just part of life. It's what was supposed to happen. It was how I got, you know, it was my story about my pregnancy and how my daughter Halali, that's just part of her story. So. I see. And Having done this now, are you you feel comfortable with your decision? Something which you feel you made the right decision? Yeah, sometimes it like I'll get pings of emotion when I see twins or someone introduced me to their twins the other day. Like this is twin A and this is twin B, and it like it it, it was it kind of hit me. I wasn't expecting it because that's how they referred to the twins when I was pregnant, um, and I don't think I'll ever have the opportunity to have twins again. Um, so I mean, obviously in the beginning, I also was like maybe they're wrong, maybe. Maybe they don't know, how, you know, if the other twin is really not healthy. Like, what if, what if it's a real, going to be like real, a healthy child and they just, that's what they see. So like your, your brain starts to play tricks with you, but I definitely think it was the right choice. Um, and I'm happy for that child that I terminated, that I didn't have to bring her, her into a world where I think she would be in a lot of pain. Um, and I'm also happy that you know, for my current daughter, um, that she was born full term and on time and healthy. I did have a placental eruption later on, which is when a piece of the placenta breaks off. Um, and I was hospitalized for a couple of days. They think it might've had to do with like the, the reduction, but they don't really know. Cause I, then I was carrying two placentas. Um, and I still had like a full stomach of, there was, I carried the baby also that I terminated. It was, um, just like a sack and over time it, it decomposes. Um, and also my, it was, um, I carried my, my daughter, Haleli, but, um, yeah, I'm happy that I made that choice. Um, yeah. And emotionally, when you heard about the overturning of Roe v. Wade last week, what was your initial reaction when you heard that? 
I was scared. Um, just thinking back about my situation, like as emotional as it was, I was still able to get the help I needed. And I was just thinking about the people who would be in my position in any other, other States or in, you know, and they wouldn't have such an easy time and people would, it would be more of a battle. And I'm lucky that even though it was hard, I still had a path that I could, I could take and it wasn't questioned. Um, Cause if someone was questioning me, it would definitely have confused me. It was a very emotional time that I was just looking for support or answers from anybody. Even hearing that I only had that until 23 weeks or so was, it still was a little bit scary. Obviously I wouldn't want to, I didn't want to wait, but um, what if I had found out too late? Yeah. Uh-huh. And one last question, Abby, you mentioned that the Jewish community has been largely supportive. I just want to hear more about that. How has that support consisted? In other words, how has that been manifest for you? Um, after I, I terminated uh, my child, I reached out to the rabbi and rabbi in the community and I told them the situation and they were so supportive and they're like, if you, you're so strong and they were saying, if you need anything and like, so brave what you did. Um, and then you did the right thing and just f- feeling the confidence and the support from the community that like I, that I did the right thing and that I didn't make the wrong choice and that they're, you know, the Torah backs us up, even though one could say that it was a medical necessity. It, it really wasn't. If you look, if you get down to the nitty gritty of it, because I could have had the baby. It's not like we didn't know if it would really affect me or the other baby we knew that it had some issues, but I could have had the baby. And if it was a single pregnancy, they would have also like offered a lot because it was twins. I couldn't really have surgery for the baby. Sometimes they could fix those things, but because it was twins, they, there was no surgery allowed. Um, but the Jewish community, even if you look online for articles of support there, the articles come up right away that they say that, you know, if there's uh, for even reduction, if for healthy twins, or triplets if um you know that they're saying that the baby is stealing away life from the mom or the other baby um even if it's like just even faintly in that definition you're allowed to reduce a pregnancy so i just felt like you know there was no battle there like it was fully supportive abby i really appreciate your being so open and being willing to talk about this important issue and thank you for speaking with me today thank you Leah Nagar Powers, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate you telling your story. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Let's just start off with your story. Can you tell me what happened? So, um, not to be TMI, but I guess since we're talking about women's reproductive health, it is a little bit TMI to a certain degree. About six months after my second child was born, our Hashem, we have a 19-month-old, but about six months after she was born, I went to get an IUD put in because I had really... Um, almost crippling postpartum depression and anxiety, um, especially after my second kid, but with both of my, with both of my children. And I knew that I did not want to take the chance of getting pregnant. Um, and I wanted a more long-term sustainable for my lifestyle form of birth control. So I went and I got a Mirena IUD, which is the hormonal. There's a hormonal type and non-hormonal type, just so you're aware. I'm sure your listeners are, but just in case. My typical OBGYN, you know, she was moving offices around, wasn't able to get it put in, whatever. So I went to Planned Parenthood of Nassau County, got it put in. 
last July. Wonderful. Not a problem. Everyone said it would hurt. It was fine. Thank God. Maybe after having two kids, everything was great. No problem. I have it in. It's great. I knew I wasn't going to get pregnant. Um, and then my period came back as it does. And I was having some pain and some cramping. I didn't think much of it. I just thought, okay, like it's fine. Um, and then one day my IOD fell out. Um, <laughs> which was terrifying. Um, and what's so funny to me actually is that I mentioned it to a coworker. Um, I was working at Yeshiva at the time. Um, I mentioned it to a coworker who also had told me that she has an IUD and she was singing its praises and said, oh my gosh, you should get one, blah, blah, blah. As if it's like a handbag. Um, and she said, oh yeah, mine's fallen out too. And I looked at her and I said, wait, why did you tell me that? Like, what do you mean it can fall out? Are you serious? Because it's not as simple as getting birth control or as simple as people would like to think getting birth control can be. You know, you have to order the IUD from your insurance company. It has to be delivered to your to your provider's office. Then you have to make another appointment to get it put in. If you you have some some um, OBGYNs will also make you come back after a week or two after insertion or a full cycle after insertion to make sure it's inserted properly. Um, so it's not. It's not as simple as just getting a birth control script filled. There's a lot more involved. Um, so knowing all of that, I was really, really devastated when my IUD fell out. I did not know what to do. I called my GYN freaking out, almost in tears. <laughs> what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And she said, okay, so you'll make an appointment and we'll figure it out. Then her new office that she had moved to didn't take my insurance. Still didn't know what to do. Um, and so I said, you know what? It's fine. I made this appointment at a different GYN. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get another one reinserted. It's fine. I'll go through. It's fine. So I told my husband immediately as soon as it fell out. So he would be aware that, you know, there was no funny business <laughs> that should be happening. Right. Because he knew I didn't want to be pregnant and he didn't want me to be pregnant. That was a decision we made as a couple that we did not want to have another child um, at that time. Um, also, to give context, he was in the middle of looking for another job in software development and I was working on transitioning out of education and into UX design or web design is another way of explaining it. So it was a big transitory time for our family. So it was just not a good time financially, emotionally, and in any sort of way for me to be pregnant. So I was, you know, really careful. We were not having sex. We were being careful and appropriate and safe and all those good things. I was testing my ovulation daily to make sure that if something were to happen, that I was not ovulating that day. Um, just in case something were to happen, you know, because we're human and things happen that I, that I wouldn't be ovulating. I wouldn't get pregnant. I was testing. I was testing. This lasted, I think, two months. So I went through two mikvah cycles that, you know, great, no problem, still not pregnant. I think I'm good until I can get my appointment because of course to get an appointment, you have to wait like a couple months out, which is ridiculous. And then one thing led to another and we were intimate with each other. And my ovulation test, I was fine. I tested after, I tested that day. I tested a couple of days later. Everything was fine. And then my period's supposed to come and it doesn't come. And I think, you know what? It's fine. It's not a big deal. My husband at this point that I have realized my period is late, my husband has told me he needs to have foot surgery, um, major surgery on his foot, where he will be um, unable to walk or put any pressure on his foot. He'll basically be an invalid for eight weeks. So I'm like, no, it's fine. You know, I'm sure it's just stress about his upcoming surgery, right? Fine, fine. Um, and, then my period, and then my period's enough, and then my period's a full week late. And I think, all right, I might want to go and get a test. So I said, no, you know, it's fine. And I turned to my husband and said, my period still hasn't come. He said, don't worry about it. 
I said, no, I'm going to worry about it. And then another week passes and now it's two weeks late. And David, and David my husband says, are you, I, you can't be pregnant. Like, don't worry about it. I said, no, I think I'm going to get a test made. So I went to the store. I got a test negative. And he says, what are you worrying about? See, I told you it was negative. And I said, mm, but I still haven't gotten my period. It might just be too early. Because as observant Jews, we're aware of, based on our cycle and when we go to the mikvah and when we can be intimate with our spouse, we're like very keenly aware of when conception, uh, we have a more accurate window rather as to when conception could be. So based on my understanding of my cycle, I had determined that if I was pregnant, it would have only been two and a half weeks. So it's entirely possible that I, it couldn't have shown up on the test. So I, so I like, don't think about it going about my day with my occasional drinking, which is not that heavy, but you know, a glass of wine here or there, um, retinols, which can be damaging to fetal development, um, taking ibuprofen, which can be damaging to fetal development, you know, just doing normal things as someone who's not trying to conceive and not trying to be pregnant. Um, doing all these things that would be damaging to a fetus. Not like I was drinking and doing hard drugs, but you know, like these are things that are damaging to a fetus. Not taking prenatals, like not thinking about this at all. So now my period is three weeks late and I take a test and it's a, what some women um, online call a blinker. Like you have to, you got to look at it a little bit, but there's a faint line that it might be positive and you're not so sure. So I wait another couple of days and I take a test and it's definitely positive. And we actually had a guest over at the time. She was with us, a friend of mine, her daughter um, was staying with us and she's 18. So like, she's aware of the world. Um, thank God her mom's really pro-choice because she overheard my conversation with my husband. When I turned to him and I said, babe, I'm pregnant. He said, are you serious? I said, yeah, I've been really hormonal. So like, it makes sense. And he said, you're serious. And I said, babe, look at the test, show him the test. He says, I, I don't, I don't know what to like, I, I don't know what to do with this. And I said, well, what are we going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to be honest from my perspective. I'm not ready for you to have another kid financially, but also emotionally, I'm not ready to see you go through what you went through again. I don't think you're ready either. And I said to him, you know, I don't want another kid right now. I don't, Think I can handle it, but but what if I can't? You know, what if I can? I start, I start going back and forth in my head. Um, our three-year-old <laughs> walked into our bedroom as we were talking, and I said to her, "I said, Booba, I said, do you do you want a brother or a sister?" And she says, "We, I already have a sister." <laughs> and we said, "No, Booba, do you want another one?" And she says, "No, that's silly." And so my husband looks at me and he says, "So see, no, this is <laughs> this is what it is. Of course, she's 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 good. She's fine." but I wrestled with it a bit. Um, I went into my husband's office. I called my GYN, who, I'm, who I have a bit of a personal relationship with. And I asked her if she offers um, medical abortions in her office. Because I figured she wouldn't do surgical, but maybe she does medical. And she says she does not do any of it, which is really frustrating for me. Um, but she said her words exactly, but I can refer you to a high-end abortion clinic in Nassau County. I said, I don't want to schlep all the way to Manhasset to get an abortion. <laughs> <laughs> that's ridiculous. If I'm going to just take a pill, I shouldn't need a schlep all the way somewhere to take a pill. And I said, I don't even know how I got pregnant. This makes no sense. She said, well, you know, these things do happen. You know, it, it's, you know, you're taking a, a risk. <laughs> these things happen. Um, and she said, but, you know, I'm happy to refer you. I'll refer you out. But I really want you to think about this decision because I've seen it affect couples either way when they either decide to keep or they decide to terminate. terminate. So I really want you to think about it. Um, and if you, she said, and I can make an appointment for you to come in, you know, to do the blood work, to confirm the pregnancy and to do an ultrasound if you want. 
but that's, that's what I can't do. And I said, well, I don't need to confirm it because I'm not interested. I am not, I said, I really, I don't think I can do this. I just don't think I can do it, but I'll call your office for the referral for the clinic. So I call the office for the referral on Monday. This happens on Sunday. I call on Monday. They give me the referral. I call the place. They don't take my insurance um, because I live at the edge of Queens and Nassau County. So I have city insurance. So I have to go somewhere in the city now. Great. I called, my God, how many places did I call? I think I must have called eight or nine different clinics all around the city. It was, it was, it was crazy. Um, and this was back in March. Why did you have to call so many clinics in the city? What was the reason? <laughs> so I called different places. Some places were private and didn't take insurance at all, which I did, which was not indicated on their website, mm-hmm. um, right. which was frustrating. Um, some places would take my insurance for a surgical option, but not for a medical option. Um, some places I couldn't get an appointment that was convenient with my schedule. Um, this is all bearing in mind that we have, there were a one car family. My husband works remotely here in Queens. I was working at a different yeshiva in an yeshiva in a different part of Queens at the time. I had to take my two children in that one car to daycare near where I worked, take them home. It was, it was just, I needed to find a place that would work with my schedule that wasn't inconvenient. I need, it was, so it was, it was a lot. Um, also when I called and I told them the date of my last period, every single place said, we can't talk to you for another week. I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, you're at four weeks now. We have to talk to you at five weeks. Like we won't even, we won't even discuss it until five weeks. And I said, you could just give me a pill. I said, I know it's one, it's, it's one pill. It's a tablet. Like it's a simple situation. And every place said, we will not talk to you until it's five weeks. And I said, is that a law? I don't understand. And right. they said, no, they said, it's just not, we can't confirm. We can't confirm with enough accuracy where the fetus is. We have to make sure it's not ectopic, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, okay, fine. Cause I wanted to get it done that week. Cause that would have worked best for my schedule, but it didn't work. So I ended up finding a place in Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn to schedule it, this tiny little clinic. And my insurance would cover the surgical option, but not the medical option which I didn't, I didn't want to do surgical option because it just felt very invasive. And I just, it just, it just felt very invasive to me. Like it just, it, it just felt like too much. I didn't, I didn't want to do that, but I didn't have a choice because that's what my insurance would cover. And then when they told me that the pill was also, the medical option was also not hundred percent effective. Um, I, I really didn't have a choice because they said, well, you know, if the pill doesn't work, you'll have to come in and do the surgical option anyway. And I said, what, nobody tells you that. What? So I, didn't have much of a choice. Maybe appointment. My husband had surgery on a Tuesday on his feet, this major surgery where he can't walk for eight weeks. I brought him home with my two kids in the car, settled him into his sick bed, as it were. And um, the next day on a Wednesday, I went and I went, I, I mean, I couldn't drive to downtown Brooklyn to get it done because you're not because after you're on anesthesia, you're not supposed to drive for 24 hours. Um, one of my best friends had to drive me there, so I had to like figure out who was going to drive, whatever, um, because an Uber was too expensive, and I could not afford that. I just I, I couldn't. So my friend drives me to Brooklyn. I had to figure out who was going to watch my kids because I couldn't get them to daycare if I couldn't pick them up after. So right. I had to call my mother-in-law, and then I had to tell my mother-in-law 
um, because she just kept asking questions, not in a nosy way, but she just, you know, was asking. And so I just had to be upfront mm-hmm. with her. And then she said, Oh, I've, I've had one also. So, oh. um, yeah. So that was, or no, she was supposed to have one. And then she ended up miscarrying on the way to the appointment. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't meant to be, which is fine. But then she came to be with my husband and my children. And I went to downtown Brooklyn. My friend parked around the corner. It was, it's a clinic across the street from Junior's, actually Junior's Deli in Brooklyn, if anyone knows where that is. It was a nice clinic. I'm glad there were no protesters out in front. When I went to the Planned Parenthood of Nassau County, even though I was just there to get an IUD put in, there was this one man, an older white gentleman with a hat on that says abortion equals murder. And these pictures of disgusting dissected fetuses um, just sitting in front of the gate of the Nassau County Planned Parenthood. But in front of this clinic in Brooklyn, there was nobody. Maybe because there was a big, like, burly security gentleman in front, which made me feel very safe, to be honest. Um, but that was great. I was very glad that I did not have to deal with any nonsense when I was just going to go deal with my business. The one thing that I did not expect, unfortunately, um, was that they still had to do an ultrasound to confirm the pregnancy and the gestational age. So they pulled me in this back room where I'm going to get ready for the procedure and I see an ultrasound and I, Baruch Hashem, I, I have two kids. I, I know, I know what's involved when they're checking for a pregnancy and I see the ultrasound machine and I looked right at the tech and I said, I don't want that anywhere near me. And she said, I have to use this. And I said, I do not need to see this embryo. I don't need to see it. I don't want to know about it. And she said, we, this is our policy. We have to confirm that, you know, the placement, we have to, we have to see how far along it is. And I said, I don't want to know. I don't want to see it. I, I, I started to cry and I said, I don't, I don't want to know about this. I don't, I didn't want to see it. Um, so she turns the screen away from me, which was at least, you know, I guess some sort of solace, even though I was, you know, violated by a transvaginal ultrasound, but that's besides the point. Um, so I'm waiting now to be taken to the back room where I'm going to have my procedure. And I'm sitting there with like 12 other women. Um, I was the only white woman in the room, which I found really interesting. Um, all the other women around me were women of color and I'm a schmoozer. So I'm talking to all these women and we're all sitting there in our little like medical gowns freezing because it's cold back there. <laughs> um, and every single woman I spoke to, this was their, her first abortion, her first termination of any kind of, of these 12 other women, first termination and they all had children at home. And every single woman that I spoke to said, this is not the right time for me to have another child. Either that or I don't want another kid. I'm good with the ones I have. And I just thought that was so interesting because growing up, I, I moved a lot all over the country as a child. And I lived in Maryland, um, where I was taught abstinence only sex education in public schools. I've lived in New York, where I was taught very comprehensive sex positive sex ed. Um, but no matter how liberal of a place I've been in, I've constantly heard the narrative um, as spouted by anti-choice advocates um, that, you know, women that get abortions are, you know, loose and they're just getting them on demand and they're constantly getting them, you know, it's just something they're doing. Like every month they're just running out to get an abortion, you know, after they sleep with somebody. Um, and that just was not, I mean, that wasn't my experience, but that also wasn't the experience of these women I was speaking to, which I just found very eye-opening. 
probably because I'd been conditioned for so long to think a certain way, but that was, that was interesting. And they send me back there to have the procedure. They put me under, I wake up and it didn't fully hit me um, that what had happened, that the DNC had happened until I went to the bathroom when I'm at the clinic and there was blood. And for that brief instance of looking down and seeing blood, I was reminded of my miscarriage. I miscarried a couple of years ago. I was reminded of my miscarriage. I was reminded of all the times that I, you know, tried to get pregnant um, for both of my children and, you know, didn't conceive. And it was just like, like a really, like a, a really heavy feeling, not of guilt, but just of, and I thought it would be guilt, but it wasn't guilt. It was just a feeling of, of loss and like loss of like, like, like I couldn't breathe almost like it was just like this, like I, I didn't know what to do or what to think or how to feel in that moment. Um, so I just let myself sit with it because I just didn't know what else to do with that feeling. Um, I get dressed, my friend drives me home. Um, and I come home, obviously I need that. I can't touch my husband now. He asks me how it went and I tell him, you know, I said, it's okay. But I don't know that, that feeling that when I, when I, when I think about it, the, the thing I think about the most, I guess, is that, that feeling of, I, I, I don't want to call it shock, but it's just, I, I guess a sort of numbness in a way that's just, it's just confusion. Has that confusion stayed with you or have you moved forward from it? I don't know that I'm ever going to fully move forward from it. It's a good question. Um, because I do think that, you know, I do think that, please God, I do want to have more children. Like it is something that my husband and I want. But I also, I, I know that I am not currently and was not then ready to be pregnant and think even like ponder having another child. Um, I had incredibly dark thoughts after I had my second kid and I, I, I can't go back there. I just, I can't. And I just want to be the best mother and parent and wife for my family right now. And I can't, I can't do that if I'm pregnant and I can't do that if I'm worried about a life growing inside of me, I, I can't, it's not something I can do. Um, I don't think that makes me weak, but I went for a while back and forth with that, whether or not that makes me weak of character, but I don't think it does. Well, Leah, thank you for sharing that obviously very, very emotionally difficult story. If I can ask you a couple questions sure. about what happened, when you and your husband decided that you were going to get an abortion, did you speak to somebody, a counselor, a rabbi in advance, or is it a decision that you were comfortable with on your own? Um, so my husband actually is a Muslim Hawaii. Um, he was considering going to the rabbinate for a while, actually. So I've done the whole like Prabha thing as a quote unquote rabbitson, you know, um, the rabbinic interview business. Um, so I've always known that should this be something that would come up, that he should call Rav Shachter. Um, but we were well within the 40 day mark, um, which was also why I was in a rush to have the procedure done within a certain time frame because I didn't want us to run into halakhic issues where we go 40 days or longer. 
I wanted to make sure. So even though they claimed the gestational age of the fetus was five weeks and something days, um, I knew based on mikvah and all that good stuff that it was much younger than that. So I knew we were good halakhically. Um, so that was a decision we were comfortable making. Um, my husband has since told me, um, I'm not putting words in his mouth, these are words he said, um, that if this were to ever occur again, God forbid, that he would speak to a rev about it just to make sure that everything was on the up and up, but that he still feels comfortable with his decision. Mm-hmm. Now, I have heard people who are genuinely well-meaning. These are people who are religious Jews, and they have said and suggested sure. that in the states that are now going to prohibit abortion, most of the abortions, the vast majority of the abortions that would be halakhically acceptable will still be allowed in these various states. Now, I'm not asking you to be a legal scholar, but what's your opinion about that? Meaning there are certainly allowances in almost every state, if not every state, for danger to the mother's life. What are your thoughts about that? So I'm trying to be as polite about this as possible. <laughs> there's, 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 there's two ways I could go about this in, in terms of how I think about it. Um, I've interacted with people that are so, in my words, anti-choice, in their words, pro-life, um, that they think that the fetus, they see the fetus inside of this mother as, a, as another patient, and that there's no reason to you know, murder this, fetus, this fetal patient in order to save the life of the mother. Um, I've interacted with people like that on the internet and in real life. Um, so to those people, I say, like, go put it somewhere. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's absurd. Um, and I don't, I don't think you can call yourself a, a halachic Jew and have that opinion. I just don't. Like, you can call yourself whatever you want, but you cannot claim to be a part of my community and think that way. I'm sorry. And, you, you know, people can say whatever they want about me about that. But the other side of that is that you could say that, oh, so in these states, the, the, you know, a mother's life will still be protected. But do you want to put yourself in that situation? Do you want to put your daughter in that situation? Your aunt? Your, you know, do, you want to, do you want to test it? Like, do you want to be that test case? I don't think you do. When you speak about the people in your community, to the degree that people know about your story, have you received support from the community? Have you received criticism? What has been the general reaction in your own life? So there's been a little bit of both. Um, I personally shared on my public Instagram, which is not that exciting. Um, I'm not one of these influencers. I just did it as a hobby. Um, when I was dealing with postpartum issues after my first child, I shared that I you know, terminated a pregnancy and a bunch of people reached out and said, I've had a termination as well. Or thank you so much for sharing. That's so brave of you. Or like, go for good on you, girl. Like, good for you for sharing. I support your right to choose. It's your body. Good for you. Um, and one person, actually said to me like, wow, you should mourn that loss. That must have been really difficult. Um, and I was initially really mad at that reaction, at that one reaction, because um, I thought, what, what do I need to mourn? You know. Um, but thinking about it, that person is probably just coming from you know, a place of care um, and not of judgment. So I'm okay with it, um, but I haven't, I haven't had anyone, you know, call me a murderer or a baby killer um, or a terrible mother or parent. So I, I think the reaction has overall been positive. Okay. And when Roe v. Wade was overturned, I'm sure it elicited many emotions in you. What was your thought process that day and the days following when you first heard about what it is? Obviously, it's a very personal Supreme Court decision for you. 
despite the fact that it doesn't necessarily apply to New York, but at the same time. Hey, God. <laughs> um, I saw the alerts on my phone as, as one gets. And I, 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 I was just in a state of shock. I said, what, what? I didn't, I didn't know what to do. My husband saw the alerts and he looked at me and he said, are you seeing this? And I said, what, babe, this is real. <laughs> and I'm saying, we just, I did, he didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. I mean, he just got all angry as he does. Um, and, you know, didn't spout off obscenities or anything like that, but he was just, you know, listening obsessively, like listening to podcasts about it. I um, mean, I, I, I just didn't know what to do. Um, I called up a friend of mine who actually um, worked with Jane in Chicago, if you're familiar with the um, women's rights organization. Um, and she defended women who tried to access abortion clinics for two years when she was in Chicago. Um, she's awesome. She's great. You know, but she said, she said to me, you know, did I, did I waste two years of my life for nothing defending these women and their rights to reproductive care? Um, and that just like, it's, and that sent chills up my spine. Like, oh my God, like, I don't like what, what, what? And then to, I don't know, I guess my biggest reaction was just one of pause because I really wanted to see how my community would react or the firm community would react. And, um, and how has it reacted? So I like the statement the OU put out where they talked about the nuance of it um, from a halakhic perspective and how it is problematic um, to have an outright ban on abortion because it is halakhically permissible in certain situations. So I really appreciate that statement. Um, but there are some people that are just, I don't, I don't think they're just, they're just jumping for joy and we can't as Jews, we cannot get into bed with these evangelicals who want to push their religion on our politics. We just can't. And these people have, and they're okay with it. And it, it, it makes me, it makes me uncomfortable. I've known for years as a more liberal leaning person politically that I can't talk about my politics in circles that I feel comfortable in hush Um, But this has made that even more clear. Um, which is really difficult. Okay. Well, Leah, I really appreciate everything you're saying. Obviously, this is a difficult conversation. For women who may be listening, who may be going through something similar, what would your message to them be right now? If you found yourself pregnant and you don't want to be, or you cannot be emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, um, I'd like to tell you that you should discuss this with your partner, but your partner is not the one carrying that, that baby. So you need to do what's best for you. And if what's going to help you be a better partner and a better mother as a whole is not to carry that pregnancy to term, nobody should make you. It's not, I came home from my termination and I, my kids were jumping around and like physically climbing on top of me. And I was so at peace with my decision because that, that that's exactly what I wanted in that moment. I wanted my two children, not three. I wanted my two children to be playing with me and to be able to attend to their needs in the best way that I can. And I think every woman should have the choice to say how few or how many children she wants and or needs in her life. Like nobody else should get to tell her that. 
Once again, Leah Nagar Powers, this has been very moving, and I really appreciate your sharing your story. Thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Rifka Press-Schwartz, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. My pleasure to be here. I've just presented on this podcast several stories of women who had experiences with abortions for various reasons. And one of the lines that I've heard people say, and these are people who mean it genuinely, these are not people who have anything but but good in their hearts, they have said that, yes, halacha is more lenient about abortion than much of the law, according to, for example, evangelical Christianity, which is being pushed by some people. That having been said, even after the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision, it won't really affect women who get a halachic abortion because almost every halachic abortion will still be permitted in almost every state. In other words, even though some states are now going to prohibit abortions, they're all going to have exceptions for situations that halacha would demand an abortion or allow an abortion. And I wanted to hear if you agree with that perspective. So before I answer that question, and I will answer your question, I just want to talk for a couple of minutes about how important it is that you share the women's stories that you shared. Um, I have said before, I will say again now, that everybody knows a from woman or from couple that has had an abortion under the guidance of their posake. They just may not know that they do. And that's because for all of the reasons of stigma and everything else around this, women may not share or couples may not share that was their experience. And so instead they'll say miscarriage, they'll say stillbirth. They won't say we found out very late in the pregnancy that there was a fetal abnormality incompatible with life. And under our post-sex guidance, we terminated. Um, I personally know women who have terminated pregnancies, and I can't imagine that my experience is unique. And so, again, I think we probably all know women, all know couples who have terminated pregnancies, often very wanted pregnancies, for reasons, again, that were very, very painful, felt very personal, and they don't necessarily feel like airing and sharing with the world. And so I think it's really important for us to hear those women's stories and to realize that they are representative of many, many other women whose stories we either haven't heard or have heard, but this is what we were hearing. So having said all of that, let's talk for a few minutes about the current state of abortion law in the United States. I think it's really important to understand, and so I actually want to back us up to 1973. I teach U.S. Uh, government and politics to high school kids, and when I ask them what the Roe decision did, it's very important that they answer correctly. The correct answer is not that Roe made abortion legal. Before Roe, abortion was legal in some states and not legal in others. What Roe did is it declared abortion to be a protected constitutional right, which means that no state can take it away. Didn't make abortion legal. Abortion was legal in New York State, where I'm sitting right now, before Roe. Roe made abortion a protected constitutional right. The Dobbs decision says abortion is not a protected constitutional right. And if abortion is not a protected constitutional right, two things happen. The first thing that happens is it gets thrown back to the states. So you said there are plenty of people who say, okay, without Roe's framework, states will make reasonable decisions about how to regulate abortion. I actually should pause for another second. I'm sorry for all of the history background, but I think you brought me on here to give you some. <laughs> That's why I brought background. you on. Exactly. Some people think, perhaps because they've heard this bandied about, that until Dobbs, until uh, last Friday, um, the law in the United States, the legal regime was that a woman could have an abortion whenever she wanted for whatever reason. That isn't the legal regime Roe set up. Roe set up a complicated framework of three parts. In the first part of the pregnancy, a woman can have abortion essentially without any restriction. In the middle part of the pregnancy, we start to add some kind of balancing test in which the state has some interests and can regulate abortion um, to protect the health of the mother in certain ways. And finally, in the last part of the pregnancy, the state can ban abortion 
it can pass fetal viability. Once the fetus would be able to survive outside of the womb, the state can ban abortion with exceptions for the life and health of the mother. So life means life, that's what it means. Health is a very important exception because what does health mean? Including the very big question of does health mean mental and emotional health? So if health means mental and emotional health, you could imagine that that would permit more terminations than if you were only saying it's posing a physical danger to the woman and a physical danger to the woman's health is different, certainly going to cost her her life. So that was the framework that existed under Roe. In a later decision, which Dobbs also overturned called Casey, the court allowed Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey, um, the court allowed many more restrictions on abortion. And that's where you start to get the waiting periods and the mandatory ultrasounds before a woman has an abortion and the scripts that doctors were required to read to patients detailing um, possible consequences of having an abortion, even though doctors took issue with the consequences listed in those scripts and all those kinds of things. Um, all of those things were upheld by the court. And so there are all kinds of, of further restrictions on abortion. Again, right now I'm just describing, I'm not editorializing, I hope I'm just describing what the state of things was until the Dobbs decision. Understood. So even before the Dobbs decision, there were many states in which a woman who wanted to get an abortion would first have to go meet with the doctor, have an ultrasound, listen to a script read to her, and then go home for 48 or 72 hours, and then come back to have the abortion. So these are all things that made abortion more difficult to access. And of course, we haven't even talked about the Hyde Amendment, which is on the book since 1975, which says that the federal government can't pay for abortion. Mm -hmm. And that means that any woman on Medicaid, any woman whose health insurance is paid for by the federal government, the federal government won't cover abortion care, and she therefore has to come up with the money out of pocket uh, to pay for her own abortion. So that's all the case up until this most recent decision. So I think it's just really important to realize that it's not the case that, oh, women could have abortions up until the moment the baby was born for any reason whatsoever. That, that simply wasn't the state of things. What's the state of things now? The state of things now is that each state can decide on its own. It is important to realize that already today, as I sit here on June 30th, 2022, there are quite a few states in the union that have basically entirely ended abortion in their states. They basically entirely, I mean, that there are states today with laws on the books that do not allow abortions for fetal abnormalities incompatible with life. Now, that's not something halacha would mandate an abortion for, but in many cases, and according to many posts, who would permit an abortion for, mm -hmm. that would not allow an abortion in cases of rape or incest. Again, not something halacha would necessarily mandate an abortion for, but according to many posts, halacha would permit an abortion for. And there are some states whose laws actually specifically say that when they allow abortion to save a woman's life, they mean in an active medical emergency. Right now, she is in danger of dying. In other words, if we're afraid that she's going to die in 10 weeks, that may not be a reason. Correct. Uh -huh. um, so, the, And there are cases where that comes up absolutely practically for real, for real. Also, some of these laws, again, I'm only describing currently on the books in the United States right now define pregnancy as beginning at the moment of fertilization of the egg. Here's why this is significant. There's a couple of reasons why this is significant. The first reason is um, that's not generally how doctors understand pregnancy to begin. Doctors understand pregnancy to begin when the fertilized ovum implants in the uterine wall because many fertilized eggs are flushed out of women's bodies without ever implanting. Woman doesn't even ever know the egg was fertilized, has a menstrual period like any other menstrual period, nothing that we would call pregnancy. One very practical ramification of this is that there is a very bad outcome called an ectopic pregnancy. 
in which a fertilized egg does not implant in the uterus where it's supposed to, but instead further, further up the reproductive stream um, in the fallopian tubes, which is not where they're supposed to implant. And that's not good because the fallopian tubes are narrow, unlike the uterus, and not meant to stretch, unlike the uterus, and not meant to accommodate a growing fetus, unlike the uterus. And an ectopic pregnancy is a medical emergency that needs to be terminated. Otherwise, eventually, what's going to happen is the fetus will simply grow big enough to rupture, and then bad things happen. Can you terminate an ectopic pregnancy before it reaches that point of rupture? Or do you have to wait until there is a medical emergency, which is right now actively risking a woman's life? If a woman's membranes rupture, her waters break, okay? early enough in the pregnancy that the fetus is not gonna be viable outside the womb. Once this fetus is born, it's going to die. But right now, at this moment, the fetus still has a heartbeat hanging out in the uterus, slowly making its way towards dying. And meanwhile, the uterus is open and therefore subject to potential infection. The woman can, can get an infection. Can you terminate that pregnancy now, ending that fetus's heartbeat, ending that fetus's life, potential life, however you'd like to describe it, so that you can then remove that fetus from the woman's uterus, give her the treatment she needs for the possible infection, or does she have to hang out waiting till the fetus dies on its own while incurring a risk of infection? But this is not a medical emergency. She's going to die tomorrow. This is going to happen in day or days. These are actual real cases. Ireland, which for a very long time had extremely restrictive abortion laws because of the prominence of the Catholic Church in Ireland, changed its abortion laws after a woman died under circumstances exactly like these. And these laws, you're saying, Dr. Schwartz, are actually currently on the books in some of those states that are now making abortion illegal, saying that even though I believe every state has an exception for the life of the mother, you're saying that the exception for the life of the mother includes situations like the ones you're speaking about, meaning only specifically when it's an acute danger to the life of the mother they in some situations. They are codified as specifically as an active medical emergency that is uh -huh. written into some of these laws. And again, you can go read, you don't have to trust me, you can read the Oklahoma law, you can read the Idaho law, you can read, unfortunately, there are more and more of them every day to read, extremely restrictive laws with extremely restrictive circumstances. I will add as a side note that it is clear in some of these cases that the laws are being passed by people who have no understanding of um, women's reproductive systems and how they work. And I just want to pause there for a second and say, so what I'm saying to you very clearly is, there are currently states in the United States that currently have laws on the books and more being passed or going into effect every day because some states had trigger laws that would go into effect if Roe would be overturned. That would very, very, very significantly limit women's access to abortion, including abortions in cases certainly where halacha would permit it and maybe even where halacha would require it. So that's all about the current state of things in the States. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I would like to say that um, my friend and prominent Orthodox Jewish law professor and expert on First Amendment law, Professor Michael Avi Helfand, thinks that this can be addressed by making sure that the laws have robust exemptions for religiously permitted, if not required, abortions for free exercise. And so that would be a different way of approaching this issue. It's fine for Oklahoma to outlaw virtually all abortions for people in Oklahoma, as long as they make sure that observant Jews can, or anyone else, adherents of any other religion, can access abortion care when they need it. Okay. I am not here for the moment to talk about what is the best legal avenue to preserve Orthodox women's or any other women's access to abortion in circumstances in which it would be supported or mandated by their religions. I just would like to point out what the current state of things is in the United States, because it does seem like some people don't know that. And he's suggesting that it's not that this is happening right now. That would be an avenue, a vehicle through which we could 
allow this Dobbs decision to work together with Jewish law by allowing all of those states that have outlawed abortion to make exceptions for places where halakha would say that an abortion is mandated or allowed? Well, it's less about the states passing exemptions and more about the Supreme Court interpreting what it means to support people's free exercise or to guarantee, support Uh is the wrong word, to guarantee people's free exercise of religion and what would that require in these cases. So so that would require a different Supreme Court decision altogether. Well, not necessarily. There have been in the past, as we know, there have been quite a few cases. The current court is, is fairly deferential to free exercise claims. Certainly we've seen to free exercise claims of religious Christians. How well that would translate to minority religions, I think, remains to be seen. But the current Supreme Court has been fairly, people probably re- remember the case of the cake baker who didn't want to uh, bake the cake for the gay wedding and making the claim on, on First Amendment grounds, on free speech grounds, on free exercise grounds. There are a number of different grounds thrown in there that they shouldn't be forced to uh, produce a cake for a wedding that they, is that a violation of non-discrimination law or is that their exercise of their First Amendment free speech and freedom of religion rights? Right. Cases like that, Hobby Lobby, the, the giant craft store company, not wanting to provide um, contraception, contraception through its health insurance plan for its employees or certain forms of contraception and can Hobby Lobby be required provide that. So the cases, the, the court has dealt with all kinds of cases about how much space it makes for people to say, I can't follow this law, it required, my, my practice and my religion requires that I not follow this law. And the current court has been fairly deferential, again, to those claims, certainly when they come um, from religious Christians. And so it's not necessarily requiring a new ruling as much as it's requiring applying existing rulings to this case and trusting that they will be applied in this way to these cases, which they might or might not be, but trusting that that would following the pattern. Okay. So all of that is as far as it goes. Again, I don't. I'm not making a claim as to whether that would or would not be effective to secure um, observant Jewish women's ability to access abortion. I'm only saying the current state of things in many states in the United States right now would, in fact, make many abortions that halacha would permit out of the reach of observant Jewish women, unless this robust religious carve out was accepted and implemented. But all that is step one, because here's step two. Okay. Step two is that the National Republican Party or more than 40 years has made clear that its desired end goal here is a national level ban on abortion. So one thing that many people in the observant Jewish world are counting on is that a lot of us live in blue states. A lot of us live in blue states with very liberal abortion regimes. And it's true. I I feel bad for my Orthodox sisters in Ohio or in Texas or Missouri. They're probably going to have a rough time of it. Florida will probably get there sooner rather than later. But here we are in New York and New Jersey with very liberal regimes around abortion. And, you know, I don't know. So she'll get on a plane wherever to New York and there will still be abortion care available. Uh, But all that assumes that the end game here is that this is just left in the hands of the states. And the stated position, you don't have to trust me, you can easily look this up online. The stated position, the Republican Party platform going as far back, at least as 1980 presidential election is to call for a national ban on all abortions. Now, for most of that time, they called for it through an amendment to the Constitution. That's because, again, remember back to Roe, Roe declared that abortion was a constitutional right. And right. so in order to end abortion as a constitutional right, you would need a constitutional amendment. It's a pretty heavy lift. It takes two-thirds of the vote of this and three-quarters of the vote of that. It's You go back and read the Constitution. That's very, very unlikely, amending. yes. It's, it's not likely. It's not easy. But now that Roe has been overturned, now that abortion is not a constitutional right, You don't have to amend the Constitution to get rid of it. Congress would just have to pass a law that the president would sign outlawing abortion. 
So if the Republicans are to be taken at their word based on their platforms in previous conventions, I know they didn't have a platform in 2020, but they had it in previous years, and they have called for a national ban on abortion, that would mean that if they were to have the presidency and two houses of Congress, that they would be able to pass such a law and that abortion would be illegal in every state in the union. They would have the ability to do that. And if they chose to follow what was written in the 2016 and 2012 and et cetera, et cetera, Republican platform, that would seem to suggest that was the direction um, they were interested in moving things in. Um, Now, people have said a number of things again, could be that they would pass a law that would say no abortion after six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks or with exemptions in this way and that way. But that isn't what the platform says. The platform actually says to recognize fetal personhood, which means if the fetus is a person, then you can only end a fetus's life in circumstances under which you could end another person's life. And that's a fairly limited set of circumstances. There are certain circumstances under which I'm legally allowed to kill you, but they're fairly limited circumstances. So taking the Republican Party at its stated word at these platforms that we have on the record every four years going all the way back, there is a desire to end abortion across the United States. Sometimes when I've said this to people, people have said to me, you're ridiculous. They're never going to do that for reason A, B, or C. They don't really want to do that. That's just something they said to placate more conservative Christians to get them to vote for them. I'm old enough that I remember having these conversations when people said the same thing to me about overturning Roe. Do you really think they want to overturn Roe? They don't want to overturn Roe. They're never going to overturn Roe. At the last minute, they'll flinch and they won't overturn Roe. And those of us who've been looking at this say it's actually fairly obvious that they're working in a very concerted way towards overturning Roe and have now succeeded in overturning Roe. I I trust the platform writers of the Republican Party and the party they represent, that they're actually representing their stated goals and desires. And the platform represents an outcome that the party would like to see since it has reaffirmed that platform again every four years for the last 40. Um, And given that, I think it's worth considering what it looks like if you can't count on New York and New Jersey being the blue state refugees refuges to which red state from women can travel if they need abortion care, because I don't know that there's a guarantee that that will continue to be available in the way that right this minute it, it, it in fact is. I guess some people would probably hope assuming that they're on the side of the ledger that says that they don't agree with the overturning of Roe v. Wade or they don't agree with a nationwide ban on abortion, I probably should say more accurately, they would say, well, that was something which is done when Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. And therefore, because it was the law of the land, you have to take an extreme position to say, well, we want the opposite. We want you have constitutional protection of abortion. We want to have constitutional illegality of abortion. Now that Roe v. Wade is no longer the law of the land, The more conservative side of the aisle may very well say, despite the fact that we believe in an abortion ban, the polarization that it would cause beyond any polarization we have right now would be so extreme, it's simply not worth it. We're not going to actually advocate for that to be codified in the law. But again, I guess we just don't know. So that's an interesting, long conversation of its own. The question of whether Roe served to further polarize and further make toxic American political discourse by, as you said, planting a flag all the way on this side on the abortion issue, although, as I said earlier, it doesn't exactly plant a flag all the way on this side. But by making abortion a constitutional right all across the country, did it contribute to polarization and toxicity around this issue that allowing the issue to be worked out through the legislative process over time would not have caused and things might have been less polarized and less toxic? For a variety of reasons that we're not going to talk about right now, I don't really buy that as an historical argument. But that is an argument, certainly, that many serious scholars and thinkers have made and have put out there. 
And so I suppose it remains to be seen whether those Republican Party platforms were uh, pushing all the way to the other way response to the existence of Roe. And now there will be some moderate cause found in the middle. The only thing that we're, we're somewhere in the middle, the only thing I will say to that is that the evidence in front of us does not really to this point support that read as it has become clear as it, the, the law in Dobbs, the law in the case in Mississippi that the court actually ruled on, the Mississippi law ended abortion after 15 weeks, which itself was a violation of the Roe framework. And that's how it ended up in the Supreme Court. Texas, of course, subsequently passed a law that ended abortion after six weeks, enforceable not by the state, but enforceable by private individuals suing anyone who did the abortion, had the abortion, was part of that whole thing, right, that. Oklahoma said, we see you and raise you, we're just gonna pass a state law doing, we're just, as agents of the state, we're not gonna allow abortion. As different states and different politicians attempted to prove their pro-life bona fides, and I'm even more pro-life than the other person who's come before. So what we have seen in the, in the months leading up to the Dobbs decision and the days since the Dobbs decision, we have not, in fact, seen, uh, now that Roe is out of the way, let's see if we can reach some kind of more agreed upon consensus ground. We have seen instead um, states competing and governors competing to say, I'm the most pro-life governor in the nation. My state has the most pro-life laws in the nation. And that is where we are right now. Historians in general are very good with the past and much less good with the future. So I don't pretend to be able to predict where things will be in the future, but I can tell you what the current state of the law is, what we've seen in the months where it looked like, again, Dobbs was coming up in front of the court, and, and then certainly since the, the leaking of the of the draft opinion, when it looked like it was clear which way this is going, um, I can tell you what the history of past Republican Party platforms is. So those things, I think, are that that is information that I can provide that not everybody might have readily accessible to them. I am no better at predicting the future than anybody else's, and that all remains to be seen. Okay, well, I'm still going to ask you to not quite predict the future, but perhaps your constitutional opinion about the following idea. To me, it sounds very unlikely. I don't think it would pass muster in, in the Supreme Court. But I have heard some people suggest that some of the more restrictive states when it comes to abortion might try to prosecute people, even those who go out of state for an abortion and come back home. To me, that doesn't sound like something that would, that would work. But have you heard anything about that? Or does that make any sense to you? So here is a, here is a whole other bowl wax. We like to talk about, well, by we, I mean legal scholars and certain political pundits like to talk about constitutional interpretation, like this exists in the realm of ideas like brains floating in space, untethered to any physical reality, context, setting, influence, or anything else. And political scientists, as opposed to legal scholars who look at this are like, you're kidding me, right? You don't really believe that, do you? You don't really believe that this is debate over should you read the Constitution this way or should you read the Constitution that way? Everybody has outcomes they'd like to see, and everybody finds a way to read the Constitution to arrive at the outcomes they'd like to see. Just some people are upfront about, I read the Constitution to arrive at the outcomes I'd like to see, and some people say, no, no, I am applying uniform interpretive principles across the board, and somehow my uniform principles always accord with the politics that I'd like to advance. So I will go on the record as saying that I am of the human being situated in space and time, in bodies, with interests, with influences, with everything else, and everybody who's ruling on these things is acting as that, as a human being situated in a body, in space and time, subject to influences and a context and everything else, which means we could have a discussion about whether the Constitution guarantees a right to interstate travel and whether we think that it is constitutionally supportable to rule against the right to interstate travel. 
or whether the Constitution guarantees a physician a right to tell his patient, you know, you can access medication abortion information on the internet, you should go look up online information about medication abortion, right? As an abstract set of free-floating constitutional principles, we could talk about that. I don't think there are abstract free-floating constitutional principles. I think there are people situated in bodies and space and time with interests in context making decisions like that. And if you ask me about the people, the six people, maybe the five people, if you leave Roberts out of it, and the bodies and the interests and the context and everything else, I wouldn't bet an enormous amount about the ability of people to get abortion care under the protection, whatever it is, of this court. Uh, Ju Associate Justice Clarence Thomas and his concurrence in Dobbs wrote very clearly that he would like to see a number of other cases revisited in the light of this decision, including Griswold, which guarantees married couples the right to access contraception. We have also seen a move to attempt to redefine a number of forms of contraception as abortive fashions, to say Plan B or the IUD aren't really contraception, they really cause abortion because they prevent a fertilized egg from implanting. I'm not arguing they do, I'm telling you this is the argument that's made. They prevent a fertilized egg from implanting and, uh, and that's already an abortion because we've defined life as starting at fertilization, not at implantation. Mm -hmm. right. And so these things are not contraceptives, they are abortion causers and therefore they, they can be banned as abortion causers can be banned. So will we now find, even if Griswold stands, will we now find various forms of contraception banned because they're not really contraception, they're really causing abortion, all kinds of things. We have seen some states introduce laws already, again, as I said, not allowing doctors to give information. If you can't give an abortion, maybe we can also say you can't give information and tell somebody about where they can get an abortion. Traveling out of state, so, so th that was a long and maybe less than clear answer to say, I don't think the relevant question here is, can I find a constitutional principle to support in one way or another? I think the relevant question here is, where will this court go? If I had to, I actually don't even want to guess. I don't think it's relevant to guess. Um, I do think this is a court that is feeling its oats. If you see today's decision about the EPA, this is a court that is feeling the power of its majority and is willing to use that power. How far that willingness goes, I don't know. Will they uphold a ban on interstate travel or on doctors or on other people giving information? I don't know. Um, but I wouldn't actually feel comfortable taking bets on it either. Okay. Dr. Schwartz, I have one final question, and this is more asking you as a religious Jew. As we know, the Aguda came out with a statement celebrating the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The OU came out with a statement that was far more ambiguous, neither celebrating nor denigrating it, saying we can't really express an opinion because effectively the uh, protections of Roe v. Wade were too broad for halacha, but overturning it will be too narrow. I'm obviously summarizing. What's your feeling about those positions of these various rabbinic organizations? Again. There's a halakha conversation to have, and then there's a people with interests in places and times. It, here's a few things that are pretty clear halakha. I'm nobody's idea of a post sake. You should definitely talk to your local Orthodox rabbi. Pretty clear halakhically that under row, I mean, it's totally clear halakhically, that under row loads of abortions were happening in the United States that halakha wouldn't allow, um, especially since in, in, in right, people are familiar with this interesting twist that halakha is much stricter about abortion for non-Jews than for Jews, which is a whole other interesting conversation that we're not gonna have right now. Also, Roe protected observant Jewish women's right to have the abortions they needed to have. The current regime as it is shaping up, as you said, would both prevent many of these abortions that were absolutely not permitted under halacha and significantly restrict, if not prevent, the access that observant Jewish women would have to abortion. Is that trade-off worth it? The Aguda, I think, is banking that there won't be a trade-off, that ultimately they'll get the religious carve-outs, ultimately they'll get the exemptions, ultimately they'll have New York, New Jersey as abortion refuges. Whatever the, whatever the Aguda is counting on, 
I think they're counting on that. I think that they aren't correct in their political calculus, but also the Agoda is part of a world which increasingly, for a whole host of reasons that we all know, has come to find itself lined up on, on so-called social issues, right? Gender, sex, sexuality, reproduction, all these kinds of marriage um, has increasingly lined up with conservative Christian world, evangelical Christians and religious Catholics in a way that might have the Agoda lining up with its allies and bedfellows or making statements in support of its allies and bedfellows in a way that might sound different than the way that the Agoda put out public statements about abortion 30 years ago. And I don't think I'm saying anything particularly shocking to say that all of us function that way. All of us uh, respond to the environments we're in and the friends we have and the situations which we find ourselves. And I think that the Agoda is doing that as well. I think their bet that from women will be able to get the abortions they need, either because some states, because there'll be a red state, blue state difference, or because there will be religious carve outs or whatever it is, is a bet. I have to say, I'm not super just cards on the table, right? For me, it's not just an issue of can from women get the abortions they need. I do think that's a real question, but I think there are other questions here about other women in the United States. My concern doesn't start and end at the needs of from women in the United States. And certainly these enormously restrictive abortion regimes that we're starting to see crop up in lots of states are gonna be problematic for lots of women and lots of pregnant people who are not observant Jews, and I think about them also. Um, so that's that's its own conversation. But I do think that there is a level of honesty that you don't hear from too many people. Someone did say it to me. Okay, so fewer from women will be able to get the abortions that they want or need. But so many prohibited, so many us or so many halakhically not sanctioned abortions will be stopped. And that trade-off is worth it. That I think is a fascinating philosophical question. I appreciate my that one interlocutor of mine being straightforward about what the trade-offs were and that he thought they were worth it. Other people might not. Um, but I think that there are definitely people who want to pretend there will be no such trade-offs, and I'm not really convinced. Okay, well, thank you very much, Dr. Rivka Press-Schwartz. This is very interesting. I appreciate you joining me today. You're very welcome. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.